Our scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from Genesis 1, the verses 24 through to 31, and then from Psalm 8. Genesis 1, verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the, living stock, living, and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So far, we'll turn to Psalm 8. To the choirmaster, according to the Gitteth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas." O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The text for the sermon this afternoon is Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 519 of the Book of Praise. Let's read that together. 
Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6, where he's asked and answered, Did God, then, create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary. God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where, then, did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we were all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So far... After the sermon, we'll sing as our arm and song, Psalm 21, the verses 1 and 4. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the conclusion of Lord's Day 2 had not been flattering. We were, we confessed, inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbour. The obvious next question is, of course, where this hatred came from. That's the material of Lord's Day 3, as formulated in question 6, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? It's an interesting question, because its very formulation catches typical human thinking. I mean this, it's in us to look for explanations for why we do what we do. And if the conduct is negative, our default habit is to look for the explanation outside of ourselves. It's called blame shifting, something we and our children get very good at doing. It's Johnny's fault, or it's the way I was raised. Or, and we have no difficulty to come with a list as long as one's arm to show that my conduct was just not my fault. But the creator of heaven and earth and he's also the ultimate judge, leaves us no room for blame shifting. Why don't we just love the way we're supposed to? The Lord God is adamant. It's because of your own disobedience in the beginning. And he adds, yet you are my people. So great is his mercy to the undeserving. I summarise the sermon with this theme. The Lord God has mercy on the blameworthy. We will see, in the first place, our guilt before God, and in the second place, God's mercy in Jesus Christ. I mentioned we prefer to shift the blame. There is no one on earth today who denies that life knows brokenness, suffering, lack of love and evil. But seldom will you meet people who dare to take personal responsibility for all the troubles of their own lives. An evolutionist will insist that evil exists in this world because evolution hasn't yet perfected things. Give it time, they say, and Mother Nature will weed out the weaknesses we know as evil. In terms, then, of personal responsibility for an inclination to hate the other, the evolutionist will insist it's not your fault, it's just the way of Mother Nature on the road to a fuller development Other religions, for evolutionism is certainly a religion, offer other explanations. 
Islam insists that man is born in a state of purity. But in the course of youth, external influences bear upon a person to make him do evil things. That makes it clear. The fault for evil in your life is not your own, but the environment around you. The Hindu will tell you that it's karma, that the way you are and the circumstances of your life are totally outside your control because you're getting the just reward of the behaviour of an earlier you in a previous existence. Nothing you can do about that. The Christian, however, speaks differently. He has learned what scripture says, and that is that evil exists in this world. Therefore, I hate God and neighbour alike. As a result of the fall into sin, that's Genesis 3, end of story. In point of fact, though, it's not the end of story. For our natural bent to pass the buck raises questions in our minds about our personal responsibility in the fall. Thoughts arise like, the fall is actually God's fault because he planned it. Or, if God had made us better, we wouldn't have collapsed before Satan's temptation. Or, the fall and our resulting sinfulness is actually Satan's fault because he tempted us. He tripped us up. If he hadn't been so mean and cunning. Or, the fall is actually Adam and Eve's fault. Then we may accept that we have to live with the consequences of their disobedience but our conscience doesn't bother us. The lack of love in our homes isn't our fault, but that's just human nature, and that's Adam's fault. But the Catechism asks, brothers and sisters, what you need to know in order to enjoy, to the full, the wonderful comfort of Lord's Day 1. And the answer includes that I need to know first how great my sins and misery are. And part of coming to grips with how great my sins and misery are is the material of Lord's Day 3, a Lord's Day that allows for no, no blame shifting in any way. The point is this, as long as you shift the blame for your personal pain away from yourself, you will not enjoy the comfort of Lord's Day 1 to the full. What we need to do this afternoon then is clear our minds of the deception that the fall and its resulting evil is somehow God's fault or Satan's fault or Adam and Eve's fault, and therefore not ours. Stronger, we need to accept in faith that the responsibility is ours. Why, then, must we say that it's not God's fault, not Satan's, not Adam and Eve's, but insist that it's fully our own? Let's see why. A. It's not God's fault. The Lord reveals himself as a God who knows no evil in himself. He is perfect free of defect in every way. He is almighty and so able to make something that's perfect free of any defect. He tells us that in the span of six days he fashioned a world out of nothing. The climax of his creating work took place on the sixth day with his creation of mankind and then his own evaluation of his handiwork. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Genesis 1 verse 31. The Hebrew actually pauses to ask the reader to sit up and take note of God's evaluation. For the text literally says, Behold. And that's to say, Listen carefully. Note this. It is very good. Elsewhere, the scriptures relate what happened in heaven when God put the earth together. 
For God tells Job that the angels burst into songs of joy and praise on account of the excellent work of the Creator. Job 38 verse 7. In fact, when John is allowed to look into heaven, he sees 24 elders fall before the throne of the Almighty and then hears them sing this song. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelations 4 verse 10. It's clear to us, neither the angels of heaven nor the elders who used to live on the earth would sing as they do about the Creator's handiwork if it were someone marred by defect. It's a point I need to press. We know that many maintain that the world got here through a process of evolution. Some of these believers in evolution are Christians and then the point is that they believe God created the world through the process of evolution. This variety of evolution is known as theistic evolution. Theistic evolution believes that the days of Genesis 1 are not normal days as we know them but are instead long periods of time, periods in which God slowly, through evolution, formed fish to be what they are, formed birds and trees and dogs to be what they are, and slowly formed man to be what he is too. This theory is actually an effort to blend the findings of science with the revelation of God in Scripture, and obviously there are problems with such a theory. I can mention that God's choice of the word day in Genesis 1 was not a mistake. If he had meant long periods of time, he would have used a word that conveyed that notion, for God is a God of truth. I can also mention the fact that the thought of God creating through a process over a long period of time does not capture the notion of his almighty power nearly so well as he's calling something into existence instantly. But most importantly, and I raise this in relation to the material of our Lord's Day, the concept of theistic evolution has within it place for trial and error. With the weaker dying out and the stronger getting better. In this picture, people have existed on earth for millions of years in various stages of human development. These people had to kill to eat. More, these people died in the course of time. But where did death come from? The theistic evolutionist has to say that death is somehow natural. But so then is the grief that comes with death and the sickness that leads to death. You see where this is going, congregation. Theistic evolution explains the reality of evil in this world, including sin, as a natural phenomenon. Yet all evolution is led by God. And so God is ultimately the cause of the evil present in this life. That picture is simply not what one reads in the Bible. The Lord God tells us that on the sixth day of creation, he determined within himself to create man. It's Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That, in turn, is what God did. Though he called the stars and the grass and the frogs and dogs into existence by a word of command, let them be, he decreed, with man he physically collected dust. 
from the ground, formed it into the shape of a man and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 2 verse 7. Later, on the sixth day, he took a rib from the man he'd made and fashioned a woman from the rib. Genesis 2 verse 21. He created man differently than he created horses and monkeys because man was unique. This creature alone was created in his image. The notion of image of God does not mean that the man and the woman God created look like God. The notion catches instead the concept that Adam and Eve and in them the whole human race reflected the way God acted. After God finished creating the world, he did not remain on this earth and so he left an ambassador on earth who could show to all creatures, be it angels or animals or plants or insects, what God was like. Specifically, though, the way mankind was to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. These fish and birds and animals and reptiles could receive an accurate understanding of God's love, God's mercy, God's justice, etc., for the world he made. We understand the position God gave to man as his image on earth, was an exceedingly honoured position. This is David's point in Psalm 8. He stands outside one night and lifts up his head to gaze up to the moon and the stars, and he's overwhelmed by what he sees. Compared to the majesty of the heavens, he feels so small. That reality presses out of him the question of verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Besides the vast expanse of the heavens, little six-foot man is little, a speck. Yet, says David, as he thinks back to God's revelation in Genesis 1 about God making man in his image, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly things and crowned him with glory and honour. Verse 5. Heavenly beings, says our translation. But the footnote gives us the better reading. The Hebrew here was the word God. This is Genesis 1. God created mankind to rule over all his handiwork and do it in a way that images what God is like. What honour, what privilege. On a scale of 1 to 10, with God at 10, God gave the human race, man and women alike, a position at 9, a little lower than God. Can you fathom, beloved, the honour of that? This, we understand, is the glorious confession of Lord's Day 3. God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. That's not language that points a finger at God, as if he somehow did a shoddy job in making us, as if the evil within us is part of his creating work. As Calvin would say, it's impious to think in those terms. But I hear you say that doesn't answer the charge that God planned the fall. And so the fall and our resulting depravity is still his responsibility. It is true, all things that happen in God's world occur because he has ordained it. He, after all, is 100% sovereign over all. 
He is the Almighty. But there's more to be said. For when the Lord God created man to image him and so give him such a high ranking amongst his other creatures, the Lord took seriously the numerous gifts he had given to man. One of those gifts was the ability to act responsibly. So God could tell man not to eat from that particular tree in the, in the garden, and man had it in him to obey that command with ease. God told man to care for the garden and do it as God would do it, and man had it in him to obey that command with ease. Then yes, God is 100% sovereign over all that he's made, but man is at the same time 100% responsible for all he does. How those two square up is more than my finite mind can understand, and that's fine, because no creature, however exalted his position in creation may be, shall ever understand the mind of the sovereign creator. The long and short of it is this. Never can I pass responsibility for my fall back into sin back to God on the grounds that the fall was part of his plan. Instead, I need to take seriously the exalted position God entrusted to the human race and recognise the responsibility that comes with that. Now let's see why it's not Satan's fault. If then we cannot blame God for our fall into sin, can we blame Satan? Is it not so that if he hadn't deceptively appeared in the garden in the form of a snake, Eve wouldn't have fallen for him? And he was so cunning too in what he said. There is no <coughs> excuse me. There is no doubt, congregation, that Satan's words through the mouth of the serpent were cunning. But the fact of the matter is that Eve and Adam too were not to take advice from any creature, just on the creature's say-so, for the very simple reason that God had made the human race to be rulers over the creatures. On a scale of 1 to 10, mankind received a position of 9, while the frogs and the goldfish and the snakes also received a position but of 1. That, too, is David's conclusion in Psalm 8, as he digests God's revelation in Genesis 1, verse 6. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And that obviously includes the snake, now speaking to Eve about becoming like God, knowing good and evil, if you eat of that tree. If a child in kindergarten suggests to a teenager that he's throwing a stone through the school window will win the teenagers will win the principal's favour sorry and the teenager then throws the stone will the principal accept the teenager's plea that it was all the kindergarten kids fault we understand it the teenager can never blame the kindergarten student simply because of the teenager's greater maturity and responsibility so it is too in relation to blaming satan our exalted position as image of god means we can never shift the blame for our fall to Satan, nor to the serpent Satan had possessed. The Catechism catches this notion in Lord's Day 4, question and answer 9, with these words, God so created man that he was able to obey, but man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself of these gifts. Yes, the whole thing was instigated by the devil, 
It was Satan who first raised the possibility of disobeying God. But the responsibility is ours. And that's caught in the phrase, in deliberate disobedience. Now let's see why we can't blame Adam and Eve. That leaves yet our inclination to blame Adam and Eve. We think in terms of, we went in paradise, we didn't eat from the forbidden fruit, and so the fall isn't really our responsibility. Then yes, we accept that we have to live with the consequences of Adam's disobedience, but we feel that we won't have to take responsibility for ending up living in a fallen and sin-filled world. The argument of scripture, congregation, goes the other way. If baby Cain, in fact, was not responsible for his own sinfulness, why did the Lord God not restore him to paradise? If the child born on the day before the flood started was not responsible for any sin, for you would argue that a child a day old hasn't already sinned, would God not be most unjust to have the child drown in the flood? Is that the kind of God you have? I can ask the same of the child in Sodom and Gomorrah, who was about to be born before God rained fire and brimstone from heaven on those cities and killed the mother and child alike. If that child was innocent of sin before God, is God right to destroy that child with the city? Is that the kind of God you have? It turns out, congregation, that God taught Israel that every child is already guilty of sin at birth. That's the lesson of Leviticus 12, that chapter where the Lord commanded parents after childbirth to bring a sin offering to the temple on account of the child they'd born. The point is that this newborn is a sinner, not just in the sense that this newborn will one day, when he or she is older, commit transgressions against God, but specifically in the sense that this newborn is already guilty before God. How is this child guilty? This child is guilty in Adam and Eve. That's why Paul can tell the Romans not only that sin entered the world through one man, and that's of course a reference to Adam in Genesis 3, but also that all sinned. And there his reference is to the fact that the whole human race, in a way I don't understand, sinned with Adam and Eve in paradise. Romans 5 verse 12. In fact, Paul uses the same argument to show that sinners are redeemed through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. For, says Paul, we died with Christ, Romans 6 verse 8. And his point is that somehow, in a way I don't understand, Christ was not the only one who died on the cross and was buried and arose. Somehow I also, with all the saints, was present on Calvary and died with Christ, was buried on Good Friday and arose on Easter Sunday. If that argument will hold for me in relation to redemption, it shall need to hold for me also in relation to the fall. I simply can't blame Adam and Eve for the evils of life, as if the fall into sin is their fault and not mine in any way. Instead, I am responsible for my own sinfulness and so for the evils I commit, as well as for the evils that happen to me. There is, brothers and sisters, a consequence that flows from all of this. It's in us to try to shift the blame for all of our troubles away from ourselves and point the finger at another. We do it readily in daily life and get very good at it. 
and no doubt others contribute to our tribulations. But the fact of the matter is that we encounter the troubles we have because we no longer live in paradise. And here's the thing, that I'm no longer in paradise is not, says the Lord God, God's fault. And it's not Satan's fault. And it's not even Adam and Eve's fault. But ultimately, says God, my exile from paradise is my fault. Before God, I first of all am responsible for the brokenness of my life, for the tension of my home, for the evils I experience, be it in giving or receiving. It will not do before God to shift the blame to another. And yes, that observation has consequences. We are humans, not goldfish. God created us to a lofty position, number nine, on a scale of one to ten. And that position comes with distinct responsibility. We need to take responsibility, all of us together and each of us individually, for falling off that exalted ladder. And we need to take responsibility for the bitter results of that fall as we experience them daily. In the light of Genesis 1, it is below the dignity of being human to blame everyone else of our troubles. We need to be men. We need to be women. We need to be truly human again and not act as if we are no more responsible for our circumstances than goldfish. But taking responsibility for our broken circumstances, brothers and sisters, also looks like something. It implies that we have to give up pointing fingers, blaming our upbringing, blaming the poor night's sleep, blaming others in the office, blaming the pressures of home or of work, and in the process, feeling sorry for ourselves. Instead, we shall adopt a posture of humility, recognising that the troubles I encounter have come upon me as the just consequence of my own fall into sin in the beginning. And that attitude will drive us to seek the only redemption there is from the troubles of life, and that's in Jesus Christ. That's our next point, God's mercy in Jesus Christ. The person who makes the confession of Lord's Day 3 is the same person who earlier made the confession of Lord's Day 1. Namely, that I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. I belong to him because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. There's now the question. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ set me free from Satan's power and make me his? Might the coming of Jesus Christ into this world somehow be an expression of regret from God's side for the predicament into which he somehow let us come? Make no mistake, congregation. God did not send his son to redeem us because he was somehow sorry that he let the fall into sin happen or because he was sorry that Satan got the better of us or because he recognises that we were not present in paradise and are so suffering because of someone else's mistake. In no way are there apologies from God for our troubles. But why then did he send his son? Why, congregation, simply and only out of his great mercy to those who do not deserve it? See here your God. He redeems the blameworthy. And that is grace, to have mercy on those who put themselves in a bind, 
How wonderful this God. There's more here. What has this Christ done to redeem you? He, brothers and sisters, was a man and acted the part of a man. That's to say, he recognised that God had given him an exalted position as ruler over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And that includes that he was both master over himself as well as master over the devil who tripped Eve up in the garden in the beginning. On the cross of Calvary, he engaged the devil in combat and defeated him, bound him, and so was elevated by God to the throne of the universe. There's more still. For when Christ died and arose from the grave, we died and arose with him, even as we had sinned in Adam. More, when God exalted Christ to the right hand of God as Lord over his creation, he raises us up with Christ and seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ says Paul to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 6. Imagine that, you and I, in principle, restored to that place of nine, in the scale of one to ten. What honour, what privilege. But if we're restored in principle to such a place, I need again to acknowledge the responsibility that comes with such a high office. That means, first of all, that I cease passing the buck to shift the blame of difficulties to others, But I'll acknowledge before my God my sins and the sins of those over whom God has given me responsibility. In the strength of the Holy Spirit, I'll act as a man again, once created and now recreated in the image of God. Instead of being a wimp, I'll take charge under God of my life, my home, my work, myself. You feel it's all too much? This, beloved, is where Lord's Day 3 stands on the shoulders of Lord's Day 1. For Lord's Day 1 had confessed this wonderful promise of God. By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. How else shall the creature fashioned to image God live for him than by being the image of God? Our lives know so many troubles, so much brokenness. I have learned from scripture where this brokenness comes from and so I'll confess with humility my own contribution to the pain and trouble of my life. Instead then of pointing a finger at another, I'll confess in humiliation that I deserve God's righteous judgment on my disobedience in paradise. Then I'll marvel in unbounded jubilation that the God I rejected in paradise has again made me his own, out of mere grace alone. What a God this is. Amen.